Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Politico's Nerdcast. I'm your host, Scott Bland. Coming up this week, it's debate night in America. Well, actually, that's coming up next week, but we're going to preview it this week. And we have two Politico reporters who are, at this point, debate experts who are joining us on the show to talk us through all the matchups and what they think is going to happen on those two Democratic presidential debates next week. Uh, And then we're going to talk to another couple of reporters who were uh, on the road reporting out a story about centrists who used to fear Elizabeth Warren, who are now kind of coming around to her as she uh, gains a little bit of momentum in the 2020 presidential race. And a quick reminder, as always, we are recording this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday this week. That's June 20th. So it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests first, national political reporter Elena Schneider. Elena, hi. Thanks for being here. Hey, Scott. And if Elena's talking debates, that means, of course, we've also got Morning Score newsletter author Zach Montalaro. Zach? We just can't quit you. I, I snuck in again, two for two. <laughs> All right, let's let's dive right in, Zach. You've been preparing uh, for this moment for weeks. You've been studying the candidates. You've been studying their polling and their fundraising and everything. And and we finally got the rundown of who, not just who made the stage, but who's going to be on which stages, right? Because there's going to be two separate nights. So wa- walk us through a uh, quick rundown for people who haven't been following. Who's on the stage for the first night of the debates? Sure. So the first night, June 26, 10 candidates, Cory Booker, Julian Castro, Bill de Blasio, John Delaney, Tulsi Gabbard, Jay Inslee, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, Tim Ryan, and Elizabeth Warren. Man, there's something about just reading them all out loud in a row like that that really drives home how crowded it's going to seem up there. It's going to cut down on their amount of time to talk on stage because they're just going to have to go through the introductions and that's going to take a full five (laughs) minutes. Uh, Like five minutes a person. And so uh, the the thing that sticks out at me about that first lineup is if I'm thinking through kind of the five candidates who are at the top of the polls uh, and have separated themselves, it's uh, Biden, uh, Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg. And the only one of those five who's in the first night that you just mentioned, Zach, is Warren. Yeah. So the nights were drawn randomly. They The the NBC, the network sponsoring debate, took the top eight polling candidates who were all polling above 2%, split them randomly among the two nights. But, you know, the top eight is not all equal. Those five are not the same as someone like Beto O'Rourke, who is kind of drastically dropped in the polls or Amy Klobuchar or Cory Booker, who never really risen past, you know, three, four percent. So of those top five polling candidates, the candidates who can routinely say they can at least, you know, approach double digit, if not quite hit it. Only one of them is on night one, and that's Warren. Mm. So who's on night two? So night two, deep breath, Michael Bennett, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, John Hickenlooper, Bernie Sanders, Eric Swalwell, Marion Williamson and Andrew Yang. And so now, Elena, the, the thing that really jumps out at me about that list is that, of course, we've got Bennett and Hickenlooper from Colorado fighting out for the mantle of who, <laughs> who's going to be the one survivor from Colorado. That seems to be the main event. Oh, yeah, I'm... that's definitely all we're ever going to be paying attention to. Um, no, I think what's really interesting about 
what we have seen over the last, even the last 24 to 48 hours, is some real uh, cracks in terms of this sort of friendly kumbaya, let's all get along Democratic primary that we've seen go on for the last six months or so since everyone started getting into this race. That really start to, started to break down. First and and most drastically between former Vice President Joe Biden, um, who got himself into some serious hot water in his comments about uh, his 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 previous work with segregationist senators. Oh, we are um, going to talk about that a lot later. <laughs> <laughs> um, bragging about uh, bragging about his ability, basically to work with everyone. Obviously, condemning uh, the positions that they took, but being able to sort of say, "I can even work with these people." Cory Booker is somebody who's come out really forcefully, cr- being very critical of the vice president, saying, "You know, last night on CNN, I shouldn't have to. The b- vice president shouldn't have to have this lesson." They're going to be on different debate nights, so we're not going to see them go mano a mano. Over over something like this. In the same way, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are both going to be on two different nights. So there are some interesting dynamics that we've seen start pop up in the last in the last couple of hours that we're actually maybe not going to see um, maybe play out in person on the debate stages. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm sure that both are going to potentially take the option of of maybe talking about their opponents even if they're not on the stage. Mm, that's a really good point, Zach. What you know as as you're perusing these these matchups and 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 figuring it all out. And I guess now we know who's going to be at which podiums, although I'm not mm-hmm. sure that matters mm-hmm. so much. Uh, but uh, what, what what sticks out to you in, in terms of uh, things that you're expecting to see uh, on the night of, on the 26th and the 27th next week? Yes, yeah, so I'm going to start with a wild card on the 27th. Um, both of the outsider candidates, the candidates you know who in traditional years would be nowhere near a debate stage, Marion Williamson, Andrew Yang, um, not politicians, fairly low profile, they're both on night two, and not only are they on night two, they're on it together and with four of the top five candidates. So will mainstream, you know, traditional politicians, will a former vice president in the United States have to respond to Marion Williamson or have to respond to Andrew Yang? I'm not saying that Andrew Yang and Marion Williamson are going to suddenly be rivaling Biden in the polls following these debates. I think that's exceedingly unlikely to be generous. But they will be on stage, and they can't just be totally dismissed out of hand. What, what what do we think about Elizabeth Warren kind of being by her among those front runners being by herself? Uh, obviously, I mean, there's going to be nine other people on the stage with her, including uh, fellow senator, House members, on and on. Uh, but but kind of being off by by herself, separated from the, these front runners. I mean, I I think in in some sense it's impossible to know before it before it happens. But uh, it seems like uh, there's a lot of different directions that that could go. I think this is an opportunity for her, for Warren, to paint a real contrast with herself and the rest of the field. If she was on stage with somebody like Bernie Sanders, she's it's a lot harder for her to then claim the mantle of being the candidate with all the plans. Bernie Sanders is somebody who, in all of 2016, really dominated that primary and that conversation around the plans that he was putting forward, most memorably Medicare for All, but obviously four years free college. Those are the sorts of uh, the sorts of issues that Warren has sort of partially embraced or taken on and and sort of um, ma- made into her own. And she can now do that in a way on this debate stage without anyone necessarily challenging her on that front. Um, and I and I think that that's that leaves an opening for her, even though she won't be staring the stage with other quote unquote uh, top tier contenders, that that actually might leave some room for her to really blossom. That's a great point. So now let, let me ask do, do you guys think that after these debates, either on each night or after both nights are over and, and we're kind of looking at this, do, do, do you think there's going to be a clear winner 
coming out of these. I see a note here that says Zach has strong feelings about this. So Elena, what do you think? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding, Zach. Go ahead. Yeah. So I think we as members of the media should be hesitant to declare a winner just from what we're watching. But there will be tangible ways to measure that. There will likely be snap polling immediately following it saying, who did you think performed the best? Asking voters, not people, not members of the media watching it on TV, voters who, you know, who they thought won. And there will certainly be polling following it, you know, seeing the rise and fall in polls. But I think we should actually look online, too, and see what kind of traffic people are generating online. You know, Google has this great tool that you can see how people are searching for individual topics and candidates or topics. So if after night two, all of a sudden, Kirsten Gillibrand has an incredible shoot up in search traffic, probably means she had a good night. And that's, you know, that's closer to hard data than just pontificating on what people think had a best performance. I think that we're less likely to get a clear winner out of this. Mm -hmm. And if anything, more likely to get maybe a clear loser. Hmm. And if you remember back to 2016, there were some key moments in those Republican uh, debates that were just totally massive, very reminiscent, obviously, of what we're going to be dealing with um, this go around, where there were some clear losers. And, and, you know, look no further than Marco Rubio, who was sort of put on display as a robot after Chris Christie pretty, pretty ruthlessly kept going after him and after him about sort of him returning to his talking points. And that was a, a really uh, both compelling and damning moment for him where it was put on display sort of a real weakness for his that 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 Donald Trump had sort of started to point out and then Chris Christie drove home. And that really contributed to Marco Rubio's nosedive. So I think that, you know, I'm not saying that that's necessarily going to happen, but it's one that maybe is is more likely than having any kind of a clear winner come at, coming out of this. That's a good point. Or there could be like a group of, of people who acquit themselves well. Right. And, um, I think one, one fear that our that our colleague Nancy Cook got into in a, in a story this morning, one fear that Democrats have is that Trump is going to win the Democratic debates and that somehow he's going to find, because he so often does, a way to make it all about him. I mean, maybe he'll be live tweeting, who knows, and... <laughs> And maybe I mean, there have been times in congressional hearings where people have responded to Trump's tweets in real time. You know, can you imagine the the um, if if he if somehow the moderators end up bringing that in uh, to to one of these debates? I mean, who knows if he'll be actually watching? I kind of think he will be. But uh, yeah, no, I think that there there's certainly been reporting that he's going to be live tweeting this as he flies to Japan. And I I could absolutely see a scenario in which after a break when they've all rushed off to go to the bathroom or hyperventilate into a paper bag that they come back <laughs> on stage and a moderator asks them, you know, the president just tweeted X. What is your response to it? And I think that there's a big opportunity in that. They can, you know, whoever it might be, be it Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden, that they have the opportunity to take whatever the president says, either turn it on its head, ignore it, mock it, do it in some way. And I'm not sure which among those options is maybe the best to sort of um, make themselves look more presidential or, uh, or, or dismiss what the president might have to say. But I think that how they acquit themselves in those moments is going to say a lot about how they might perform in the general election. And for a primary electorate that is so deeply obsessed with beating this president, I think that that offers a both a huge opportunity and potentially a big risk. Yeah. And we know a lot of Democrats will be watching these debates. Parapolls came out earlier this week. Uh, Monmouth poll found that 56 percent of likely Demo- or Democratic primary voters in general said, yeah, I'm going to be watching this live. And another quarter said, I'll catch the highlights afterwards. Second poll found like 80 something percent from Suffolk University of Democrats said, yeah, I'll watch the debates in some form. So Democrats are planning on tuning in. 
So it's not like they're speaking into a void here. This is for a lot of candidates, their first shot at a really, truly national audience to the base they need to talk to, Democratic voters. Mm, That's really interesting. All right. Well, we're going to have wall-to-wall coverage on Politico.com. That's the nights of June 26th and June 27th. And of course, keep an eye on your Nerdcast feed for episodes about these debates. Next week, Elena is going to be in Miami for it. Zach's going to be helping hold down the fort in the Politico World Headquarters. Looking forward to it, guys. Thanks for coming in to to give us the preview. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Scott. All right, let's dive into our second segment. We've got two more Politico superstars here, a real dynamic duo, back from uh, Exploits on the Trail uh, just earlier this week. First, uh, here in the studio, senior politics editor Charlie Matessian. Charlie, welcome back. Hi, Scott. And on the line, we have national political reporter Natasha Karecki. Natasha, it's great to have you back as well. Thanks, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Charlie and Natasha, uh, we're, we're working on the story that published this week about uh, Elizabeth Warren and some centrist Democrats who were once uncertain about her who are now uh, open to the idea of getting on board. And, uh, Ch- Charlie, tell us about this trip. You guys went to South Carolina. Uh, You're covering an event there. Tell us about what happened. Yeah, so uh, Natasha and I went to this event held by the group known as Third Way, which, uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's a, uh, a, a group that is centrist in orientation and uh, very much wants the party to, uh, wants, it wants to put a break on the party's uh, leftward drift. And it's pretty controversial within the Democratic Party only because of uh, some of its funding. It takes, uh, you know, some corporate money. It's a think tank. It's not an advocacy group, really, although it does you know, sort of seem like one. But it takes money from banks and has been uh, at war to a certain extent with progressives that really uh, have a hard time with with third way and it has been, and this is and so third way this think tank convened this gathering in Charleston uh, of uh, maybe a few hundred uh, influential Democrats in the party centrist members of Congress governors um, kind of movers and shakers influential people within the party and it was designed to sort of talk about ways to 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 it was called opportunity to win, and uh, so they had seminars and speakers talking about you know what to do how how to defeat Trump and how to keep the party from uh, in their view moving so far to the left that it can't win in the general election. Natasha, what was the mood there? Can you tell us a little bit about about how you got into this story about about the, this this group? Uh, some some people of of which had, had criticized Warren quite a bit in the past. Now now kind of. Uh, being more into into the idea of supporting her. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what sort of first got us on the story was <clears throat> some of our initial conversations um, with Matt Bennett, the, the co-founder of Third Way, who and he started talking about Warren in a different way than the group had uh, just a few years ago um, when, you know, they, they talked about, uh, you know, Warren uh, having a, fantasy-based blue state populism. Um, and, uh, and now they're saying, you know what, we're kind of open to her. Um, so it started with that. And then once we started talking to more people, you started hearing sort of the same theme that, you know, I don't agree with everything that she's for. They're not crazy about Medicare for all. Um, they're not, uh, you know, crazy about like free college and, 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 you know, this relief of college debt, but, um, they do like some for all other policies, um, you know, consumer pr- protection stuff. Um, they like that she has a plan. They like that she looked very prepared when she was at this forum um, over the weekend in South Carolina. Right before that, a lot, a lot of them um, had also seen that. Um, so people were just warming up to her. People who, who, and a lot of them said, like just a few years ago, they would not have thought that 
they would have liked Warren. They, they sort of lumped her in with Sanders and just thought that she was too far to the left and that, that she wasn't someone um, that they could get behind. But we just saw that changing. That's really interesting. Charlie, this seems like one of those uh, instances of a momentum begetting momentum, right? And we, we talk a lot about electability and what it does and doesn't mean and how much voters care about it. But like the, the fact that Warren has kind of been slowly rising and rising and getting more attention and putting out all these policy plans, it just seems to be kind of creating this this snowball. Yeah, I think that's a smart point. Uh, I, I don't know that we would have had so many voices telling us that they were uh, suddenly, you know, feeling warmer towards Warren several months ago, back when she was languishing at the bottom uh, of the pack, uh, when she, you know, her campaign seemed to be uh, going nowhere fast. But uh, so, yeah, it's clear that the momentum has registered with with these people. Uh, but I think it, uh, for, for us, the real news value for Natasha and I was just hearing this group that had been and not necessarily the group, because we, we I should say that the group itself, Third Way, had been hostile to Warren dating back to uh, a sort of a well-known 2013 op-ed in The Wall Street Journal where they torpedoed her. And as Natasha mentioned, you know, they criticized her heavily, said she was going to lead the party off a populist cliff. And so what really struck Natasha and I was the idea that all these folks here, not just the, the leaders of the organization, but these people who were not necessarily affiliated with Third Way, but were attending this conference anyway, that so many of them suddenly were open to, to Elizabeth Warren. And, and obviously, you know, part of it is they see that it is a viable campaign. It's gaining in the polls. But it's also like Natasha mentioned, it's the, the they, they've been impressed by the issue agenda. I think that's really caught everybody's eye uh, in a way that other candidates haven't been able to. Uh, just the, the substantive policies that she's rolling out, just, uh, you know, all of these ideas, which many of these people would even say to us, and we had some voices in the story saying, hey, I don't agree with all of where she is, but they now don't view her as a kind of uh, a firebrand leading the party to ruin, that they, they could see her as a viable option if maybe it came to that. I, I still think, and, and Natasha, you should correct me if I'm wrong, I still think most of the people we talk to, Biden is their first pick right now, and he's the default person for them. He fits better with them ideologically. This wasn't necessarily a super young crowd. I mean, I, I think it was just like standard <laughs> age. I mean, I'm not, that's not code for this was a whole thing, a whole bunch of graybeards. No, it wasn't like a whole bunch of old white guys it was you know it's just it's more it was more representative of the party it was not like a whole bunch of people that spend their lives on twitter right and so for them i think their comfort level is with biden because they what they're really focused on is winning like the obsession there is like how do we not lose to trump again and this was something that a third way was making the point too even one of the co-founders who talked to us matt bennett who who uh, expressed the, the openness to Warren, his point was like, even if Bernie Sanders, and that's the one candidate they think would be a disaster, and his point was, even if Sanders won, we would support him as the nominee. We think he'd be a catastrophe, and we think he'd lose to Trump, but uh, they think that Warren is a viable candidate in a way that Sanders isn't, and, and I thought that was pretty newsworthy. Got it. Natasha, I'm curious, from, from your vantage point um, covering... Uh, former Vice President Joe Biden very closely. Did, did you get the sense that that uh, you know some of the openness that that you guys detected among uh, the, these more establishment, more moderate Democrats to Warren um, had had something to do with uh, Joe Biden's stumbles in recent weeks? And we'll you know maybe we should probably dig into the one this week a bit more after after we get through this question. Right. Well, you know, certainly I think what was happening this week, um, his comments about segregationists and so forth, hadn't, was kind of happening at the same time or hadn't quite happened yet. Um, but there, I did get a sense that, that, yeah, you know, most people seemed aligned with Biden but weren't completely locked down. Um, you know, it, one of the individuals we quoted in the story, Dan Gerstein, who 
um, was a speechwriter for Joe Lieberman, you know, talked about the fact that one of the reasons he liked Warren was that, you know, she was she was coming up with, with new ideas about the economy that that he wasn't really seeing Biden doing. And he actually said, we think she could actually give Biden a run for his money if he just tries to, you know, convince people that it's a, a third Obama term, that he needs to do something more, a, a little more aggressive and a little more bold. Um, so that's, I thought that was really interesting. Like, the, there, it was like, you know, he supported Biden, but there was this cautiousness still of like, well, we don't know if he's, he's aligned enough. And, and not just ideologically, but just economically um, with, with where the party's heading right now. That's a really good point. And I think, I think it's a, a useful reminder that the, we we sometimes try and break down the primary into lanes and, you know, who's in the, the progressive lane, the establishment lane, whatever. But it really does seem like voters are a little more muddled and open to a lot of different lanes. Or I'm, I'm envisioning, you know, uh, Kramer and Seinfeld rolling down the highway at five miles an hour, yeah. uh, painting over the lines and, and making just one big lane. How are you going to widen the lanes? Well, you black out lane lines one and three and a four lane highway becomes a two lane comfort cruise. <laughs> so you got any so it, it seems like things are a lot more more muddled uh, than than maybe uh, we we give credit for sometime. I but we we should jump into what what Biden said this week and and, and the backlash to it. So uh, Joe Biden he's been doing these fundraisers all around the country. Uh, they're they're open press. So there's there's a a one reporter who's there and and writes down the the, the pool report, the account of what happens there, uh, and then distributes it, you know, to, to everyone on the Biden press list. And and here's what happened when when Biden was in in New York City on Tuesday. Um, the the pool report reads, uh, Mr. Biden then recalled his time serving in the Senate, and he says, I was in a caucus with James O. Eastland. Mr. Biden said, briefly channeling channeling the late Mississippi senator's Southern drawl. Mr. Biden said of Mr. Eastland, he never called me boy, he always called me son. Now, Eastland was a famous segregationist. Uh, Mr. Biden then brought up a deceased Georgia senator, a guy like Herman Talmadge, I'm quoting now, one of the meanest guys I ever knew. You could go down the list of all these guys. Well, guess what? At least there was some civility. We got things done. We didn't agree on much of anything. We got things done. We got it finished. But today you look at the other side and you're the enemy, not the opposition, the enemy. We don't talk to each other anymore. And then he goes on to talk about how he's pretty good at bringing people together and he's done it in the past. And Charlie, th- this these comments have, have brought the kind of most sustained uh, conflict and, and and comments against Biden from the rest of the Democratic primary field that we've seen so far. Um including Cory Booker, who's made a, a big show during his campaign of not wanting to uh, running on, on this message of love and not wanting to to engage in in squabbling with fellow Democrats, but who spoke out very strongly that uh, saying that as as a uh, one of the only black senators as an as an African American, he he was offended by what Biden had said. Yeah, it was. I mean, let's face it; it was pretty stupid. It was pretty tone deaf. But um, what I think is going to be important, especially for us in the media, to keep in mind as we as we cover this, is that I mean, no one thinks that Joe Biden is a racist, right? I mean, I, I, there's not a whole lot of evidence to to support that, and you can see that Biden is deeply frustrated and angry about this. Uh, you know, it's not obvious, but if you read between the lines of the pool report and the way he sort of uh, lashed back out when when a reporter asked him, you know, about what Booker said, 
And, you know, Biden's point was, what, what should I apologize for? Like, it was, it was, it was dumb. It was tenured. Uh, I, I think it, it shows he, he remains gaff prone. He still doesn't get it uh, in some ways, like with these outdated cultural references, uh, with, with the kinds of things he talks about. Like, first of all, why would you even go there? Why would you talk about uh, these virulent racists in the Senate? You know, this was like 50 years ago. Like, you get, you get what he's trying to say. Like, I could even work with these uh, lunatic racists. And if I could do that, I could work, you know, uh, in the in the modern context. But like, he just doesn't really get that you can't talk that way anymore. The question is like, how much does that hurt him? I think that um, what the Biden campaign is counting on is the idea that the Democratic Party is not the Democratic Party that's portrayed by the media or that you read about on Twitter. And so far, they've had a lot of success because remember, he, he weathered what seemed to be really tough attacks on his touchiness issue. Uh, you know, that was a, you know, a week or two of just sustained hits. And he's taken a lot of hits. And yet he remains at top polls. I don't know how long he can continue to do that, but it does validate in some ways their theory of the case, his campaign, which is that keep in mind that more than half of the Democratic base describes themselves as conservative or moderate. Keep in mind there are a lot of older folks that are that make up the Democratic base and they're not the people on Twitter expressing outrage and, you know, cranking up the outrage machine all day. And uh, in some ways. So far, the polls have at least validated that that argument. I don't know how long he continued doing it, but there is at least some evidence suggesting that it doesn't hurt him that much. Right. With the caveat that there's, what, I guess, six, seven more months ago till till Iowa and uh, hmm. a lot of campaigns run. Natasha, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to hear what your, your thoughts about all this. Well, I mean, I actually agree with a lot of what Charlie just said. Oh, um, come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but I will be contrarian um, <laughs> because, you know, Biden's whole argument is that he can beat Trump, he can beat Trump, you know, he's the guy who can beat Trump. Well, if you start acting too much like Trump, you're outdated, you're saying things that are insensitive, um, are are you drawing the contrast that the party wants to see right now? And and there's so much energy, you know, and a more progressive base. and, And if people start getting tired of that, they want something new, you start looking around at this huge field and, and you say, well, this person can probably be Trump, and so could this person, so could this person, and guess what? They're a lot younger. They have a lot more. They don't have these outdated references. They don't have, you know, they, they can draw a, a more pure contrast to, you know, someone who's often referred to as, as being, you know, racist or racially insensitive in the White House. Um, so, I, I mean, I think, I think it's, 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 it's leaning toward very dangerous for Biden to continue down that that route. And, and we've seen that even like Mark Caputo's story earlier this week where, you know, his own aides are telling him like, hey, you know what, can you cut it out? Can you, can you make some different references? There's lots of other people you can say you've worked with, you know, in 37 years, whatever. Um, don't, don't refer back to these people. So I, 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 I think it's that. And, and it's just another reminder of, um, you know, just that he's, that he's an older candidate, that he's 76 years old and he's, um, you know, he, yes, he's gas prone, but but this is he, he's just kind of living in in another world, and and in that respect, like, right before the debates, I think he's just opening himself up to all kinds of attacks next week. One mm-hmm. other thing, Scott, that that I think we should factor in here is that the environment has changed. Also, like we're, he's not saying these things in a vacuum. This is an environment in which Trump has changed all the expectations and all the rules regarding what candidates have said. So I think maybe in the past, some of this stuff might 
have taken a, a, a bigger toll on him. Whereas now, and this is a point this, uh, that Natasha uh, has made to me several times, is that when she goes out on, on the trail, and, and I, I, I shouldn't speak for you, Natasha, you should explain the point you were making about what you hear from voters all the time about oh. defeating Trump and how Trump has changed the rules. Well, right. And that's why I initially said I actually agreed with Charlie, because you know, I, I feel like we've done this story several times, you know, but the touching controversy, we talked to all these people, activists in the early states, and they all kind of, kind of were like, shrugged their shoulders and said, so the the president's accused of sexual assault. I mean, I, I feel like there's just like a change in, in, in this attitude and what people are willing to put up with in the party. Um, you know, you, you bring up, you know, different comments that Biden's made at, at all these events. You know, I was just in Iowa last week and it, and it's, it's often the same reaction of, well, so what? I mean, look who's in the white house. It, it, they always go back to Trump. And if if Biden can continue, um, you know, to project this inevitability or this, you know, aura of, you know, I am the person who can be Trump, then that then I then I think he, people are willing to forgive a lot um, because they so badly want to be Trump. That's a great point. Uh, just really interesting. Look at the, the different forces kind of pulling the primary and in, in different directions. And, and right now buffeting the, the front runner a little bit. Uh, Natasha, Charlie, thank you so much for uh, for joining us this week to, to talk about all this. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Bill Cookman is our illustrator. If you like the Nerdcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.